Hello again, I'm Morgan Roberts, one of the retired ministers whose privilege and delight it is to be worshiping at Church of the Palms and enjoying the pastoral leadership and friendship of Pastor Steve McConnell. Uh, let's prepare our hearts for today's meditation by listening to some lovely music. Our lesson today is from the opening verses of the book of Esther. I'm going to read it to you from Eugene Peterson's translation. Uh, if you look in your own Bible, uh, which is probably New Revised Standard Version or Revised Standard Version, you'll notice that the name of the king is different than in the reading that we're going to do. Uh, why these two readings are different is a matter of complicated biblical scholarship into which it is not necessary for us to delve. What's interesting about these, interest, these early verses is that this is the book of Esther, but Esther has not yet stepped on stage. Uh, but instead, another interesting woman who is the queen named Vashti, she comes on stage and she almost steals the show. Let's read it uh, from Eugene Peterson's translation. This is the story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. Xerxes ruled from his royal throne in the palace complex at Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his officials and ministers. The military brass of Persia and Media were also there, along with princes and governors of the provinces. The party was in the garden courtyard of the king's summer home. The courtyard was elaborately decorated with white and blue curtains. 
uh, tied with leaden and purple cords to silver rings on marble columns. Drinks were save, served in gold chalices, each chalice one of a kind. The royal wine flowed freely, as would be the case with a generous king. The guests could drink as much as they liked, with waiters at their elbows to refill their drinks. Meanwhile, Queen Vashti was throwing a separate party for women inside Xerxes' royal palace. On the seventh day of the party, and that's quite a party for running for seven days, the king, high on wine, ordered the seven eunuchs who served him to bring Queen Vashti resplendent in her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the guests and officials. She was extremely good-looking. But Queen Vashti refused to come, refused uh, the summons delivered by the king's messengers. The king lost his temper, seething with anger over her insolence. The king called his counselors, all experts in legal matters. It was the king's practice to consult his advisors. The seven highest ranking princes of Persia and Media, and he asked them what legal recourse he had against Queen Vashti for not obeying his summons. One of them spoke up. It's not only the queen that she has insulted you, it's all of us as leaders of the king. The word's going to get out. Did you hear the latest about Queen Vashti? When the women hear it, uh, they'll start treating their husbands with contempt. The, the day the wives of Persia and Media get wind of the queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what a pitiful ending to the story of uh, King Xerxes. I mean, here he is with all of his power. He's lord of all he surveys, 127 provinces. But what he's worried about is a country in which women don't know their place. Well. You know, it's not too long ago when the world was like that. In fact, it was sort of like that when I went to my first church in 1953. In some ways, it was like that. The reason I got to my first church is that on the last day of our preaching class, the senior preaching class that was taught by Dean Edwin Roberts, uh, he called me aside and thanked me for the good job I'd done on my last sermon. And he said, let me give you some advice. When you leave here, don't go to a large church in which you're the assistant pastor for youth ministry or some other part of the work. Go to a little church where you have to preach every Sunday because it's obvious that you like to preach, you want to improve your technique, and the way you're going to do it is to have to preach every Sunday. So... I was offered a little church of 212 members, and that's where I started out, preaching every Sunday. But it wasn't necessarily a beautiful sight. I mean, on a Sunday morning, 
average attendance would be about 50. There were 212 members, but they were all old folks. Uh, and uh, I would stand there and preach my heart out. Uh, and to these 50 people, 75 at the most on a high holiday, uh, all of this was happening in a sanctuary that would seat 600 people. It was tempting to believe that I was wasting my fragrance in the desert air. However, that's what I did. Uh, the church was an interesting church. Uh, I said it looked like a church in which uh, women knew their place. It was ruled by uh, four elders, and they really were elderly, and they had been elected for life. There were no term limits in those days. That was about to change and become like it is nowadays, where you serve uh, for three years, then you go off the session until you're elected again. But back then, it looked like four men were running the church. On the other hand, 40% uh, of the members of the church were women over uh, 65, and they were the ones who were coming to church and paying the bills. So it was sort of hard to say uh, who was running the show. Was this a church where women knew their place, or was this a church really at the bottom line being run by women? Well, all of this changed suddenly. And the reason it changed is that all of a sudden, we elected our first woman elder. There had never been a woman elder, just old men. And now we had a woman elder, and she was ideal. Uh, Margaret Foster was her name. She was born in India of missionary parents, and she simply fit the bill. And once she was elected, other women began to be elected to other positions of leadership. And it's not just other women who were elected. Uh, you didn't have to be an old man anymore, so younger men were being elected to positions of leadership. Uh, everything was changing. And as a result of this, uh, other things began to change. There was a church that wanted to buy this big old barn of a sanctuary, and we sold it to them. And we moved into a splendiferous Hudson River mansion uh, where we turned what appeared to be the ballroom into the sanctuary. By the end of 10 years, uh, this was a different church. It was still small, 224 members, but giving to the church had quadrupled. It was an entirely different operation. So the lesson I learned from this for any organization is if you want to have a healthy organization, don't ask people to stay in their place. Let them be whoever they really are. Once I wrote that down in the manuscript, I had another question that arose in my mind. The world certainly doesn't uh, look like a place where women aren't kept in their place. Women are put through terrible, uh, terrible uh, subjugation in parts of the world. Their pockets where uh, slavery still reigns. But what if, what if we treated the world as God saw it? And let me put it this way. What if we looked at the world and realized that it was an enchanted garden of God in which God was growing his children? An enchanted garden of God in which everyone, 
everyone uh, is a, a child of God. Now, someone says that's a pretty way out description of the world, but it's not really. It's what the Bible says about the world. You know, if you go to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, it takes you back before there was a world, before Adam and Eve, before the creation stories and all of that. It takes you back there and it says, there must have been a day once when God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got tired of being alone up there in heaven and they made this decision, let's create a world and fill it with our own children. And that's what it says. Uh, from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, before there was even a planet Earth, uh, it was decided that we all were destined to be children of God. That's what every one of us are. And what if we could see the world that way? What would it be at the end of my little spiel here today if you went out and tried to treat the world as a place when everyone is a child of God? Now, that was an experience that the Trappist monk Thomas Merton had once. He'd come into Louisville uh, to do some errands for the seminary, and all of a sudden he realized he was standing at the corner of 4th and Market, and there's a historical marker there to mark this mystical experience of his, and suddenly realized he wasn't different than anybody else. Oh, he was shut off and cloistered, in a Cistercian monastery, writing his books. But uh, he was just another human being. But he thought, what's so bad about being a human being? When God wanted to get into our world, he became a human being. And he wrote down, if only people could see themselves, they're shining like the sun. Now, what if you went out from here and what if you went out in the world and tried to see everyone as if he or she was shining like the sun as a child of God? Maybe you'd go to the market and there's the checkout girl and you don't know her and that's not much of a life. Maybe that's the best life she'll ever had. But she's a child of God shining like the sun. The guys are out back unloading a truck. Being a truck driver isn't much of a life. But they're not just chuck drivers. They are children of God shining like the sun. So just as I was writing this, a geek arrived. I had made an appointment to have my uh, printer fixed. Well, I never leave a, a fixer just by themselves. I think when somebody has to go and fix stuff all day long, somebody ought to treat them like a human being. So I will always sit with them and ask questions. And one of my questions as they sort of finish the job is, uh, how long have you lived in Florida? And they say, oh, well, since so-and-so. And I say, well, uh, where'd you live before that? And this geek uh, who was named, uh, oh, I forget his name even, but uh, this geek says, well, before I moved here, I lived in Pittsburgh. So right away I called. Nora said, uh, Greg was his name. Greg used to live in Pittsburgh. Well, the two of them went on like anything. I mean, Pittsburgh, the home of the, the famous Steelers. And then, also, uh, down the street and up a block from the church where I was serving, the TV station, which was the home of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. 
Uh, what a place to live. Well, they went on talking for a while, and finally it was time uh, for Greg to go and uh, said goodbye, thanked him. But there's one thing I didn't say that day. Lots of times when a, a repair person was leaving, I would say humorously, I hope I never see you again. By that I meant, oh, I hope this thing doesn't break down. I hope your work holds up and I wish you well, that kind of thing. But I didn't say that because I remembered what I was just writing, that he was shining like the sun. He was a child of God. I was going to be living with him forever, that we're on the same pathway, headed home to the Father's house. Try living that way. Of course, you say there's some people. It's impossible to believe that some people are children of God. But let me read you something I've held on to for years. It was written by the Catholic theologian Paul Claudel. And he wrote and said this, There is no one of my brothers or sisters I can do without. In the heart of the meanest miser, the most squalid prostitute, the most miserable drunkard, there is an immortal soul with holy aspirations which, deprived of light, worships in the night. I hear them speaking when I speak. I hear them weeping when I go to my knees. There's not one of them that I can do without. There are many human beings, but there's not one of them with whom I am not in communion in that holy apex when we utter together our Father. Your homework today is to go out and pretend that you're living in an enchanted garden of God and that every person you meet is shining like the sun. Go ahead and try it, and God be with you. Amen.